I got a ton of emails uh, about the live stream, and I, I just uh, loved every one of them. Thank you so much. Um, it's really helping us uh, know those of you who are out there who need it. And uh, again, all you have to do is ask. Ask and you will receive. Uh, we're not trying to be uh, jerky about this. Um, but at the same time, too, we are trying to fight for what, what the church is supposed to be. So the emails coming in just uh, helps us live in that. Um, the church is a place where we are to know and to know others, where we're loved and we love others. And uh, so great with that. All right, we are stepping into a six-week series on prayer. I didn't hear any cheers there. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, good. <laughs> Why prayer? Um, we were going to do Esther, and I just, it, it just, yeah, God clearly d- directed our hearts uh, to this. I, I think this morning that almost everyone in this room would say that prayer is very important. Uh, but as important as prayer sometimes can be to us, uh, how many of us actually spend time doing it? Do we really treasure it? Do we know the treasure that prayer is? Do we even know why we pray? Do we, need, do we know how to pray? Uh, so for the next six weeks, uh, we're going to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul because Paul in his New Testament writings, and I think his writings, these letters to, to the first churches, uh, make up half of our New Testament. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, Paul can't write a letter to a church without breaking out into prayer. In fact, scholars have identified 44 prayers in these letters that Paul writes. And I think so many of us think of Paul as as simply being this theologian that, that gives us this theology about God and Christ, the gospel, the church, the kingdom. And, and while Paul does some of that, uh, Paul is, is first of all uh, a pastor, he is a church planner, he is a missionary, and he is a man whose life and ministry is marked with prayer. He's devoted to prayer, which is why even in his letters he instructs such things as he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Or another place he says, pray without ceasing. Just think about that. Uh, he also says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, pray, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Do we do this? I mean, let me ask you right now, how important is prayer in your life? What place and, and, and priority do, do, does prayer take? Uh, if, if you're married, what, what place does prayer take in your marriage, in your family? What about in this church? Is this a church that prays? Prayer is a core value of this church. I don't know if you know, but we do have some core values. Uh, let me read the core value uh, of prayer. We value prayer because we believe that only God can accomplish what he calls us to do and that God should receive the full glory for the reason we believe uh, the church should be committed to night and day prayer. 
for the world, the coming of the kingdom, and a deeper manifestation of God. Without prayer and dependence on God for all things, we are destined to either fail or become conceited in our success. So therefore, we value continual prayer because we desire to know God, to deepen our understanding of his love for us and the world. And we value prayer because we believe we are called to the ministry of intercession and that his kingdom will come when we pray that kingdom come. You know, we didn't come to this value right out of the gates. Um, If I'm really being honest here, uh, this church, when we started, we were not naturally given or predisposed to prayer. We we were way too young, way too self-sufficient to value prayer. So God had to literally drive this church to pray. And he did that by humbling this church in our early days. Uh, He literally made this church desperate. Because at the end of the day, only desperate people pray. And I still say that humbling that that God brought upon this church was one of the great gifts. Because as the Bible says, God disciplines those he loves. And God, God literally, he disciplined us into the discipline of prayer. And I can honestly say that anything that this church is anything that this church has become. I mean, of course, it's all God. It's all his, all his grace. But from our one end, the only thing I would add is prayer. This church has learned how to pray. Now, as we step into this, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it's very intimidating for me as a pastor to preach on this for the simple reason that I am, I'm a babe when it comes to prayer. Uh, I love that the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus teaches how to pray because that's how I feel. Like I'm still just learning what it means to pray. But I'm excited that we're stepping into this because I know that, that God has so much for me, he has so much for us, he has so much for this church in regards to prayer. And so for the next six weeks, Paul, would you teach us how to pray? or God teaches how to pray through Paul. So let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And here we have one of the prayers of Paul. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Starting at verse 15. And Paul begins here by saying, For this reason, for what reason, Paul? Everything that he's talked about in the previous verses, in the first half of Ephesians 1, which I don't have time to read, but what he's spelling out for these Christians in Ephesus are all the blessings that they have in Christ. And he just lays them all out. And then he says here, for this reason or for that reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened or enlightened, that you may see 
so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, which is the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come, and that God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, which includes us. This is God's word. You can be seated. I know. Amen. I mean, there's so much here. In fact, you could probably preach four sermons on it, which we're not going to. And as we look at these prayers, of course, I want us to see and take note and ponder what Paul prays for the Christians. But I also want us to take note of what Paul doesn't pray. Because as I looked at those 43 prayers that Paul has prayed in the New Testament, and, and, and I just... Uh, poured my heart over them this week. I don't pray like Paul. Paul needs to teach me how to pray. Because as I lay Paul's prayer life next to how I pray, so much of my prayer is connected to either my circumstances or the circumstances of others. For instance, three weeks ago, I think it was, I was we were, Libby and I were visiting uh, Bennett, who, and we were at a football game, and Libby was sitting next to me on one side, Bennett was sitting with me on the other side, Libby went uh, to go get something, and she calls me. <laughs> like, why is she calling me? Well, she called me to tell me she just felt this huge lump on her throat. And it freaked her out. It freaked me out. And that night, our next-door neighbor is, our, is, a, is a physician in the hospital. And uh, he just laid out all the possibilities. And for the last three weeks, we've just been getting this checked out. Um, and knowing it could be anything from something wrong with her thyroid to thyroid cancer. And, uh, and, and it's, it's coming back that... Most likely she does not have thyroid cancer, um, but that she has hyperthyroid. Um, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm not that spiritual, you could, but you can imagine how, how, how often throughout the day I'm praying for these circumstances. And then I, I, I come to the, this prayer that Paul prays in, in verse 16. First of all, he says this, I've not stopped giving thanks and, and, and you see that uh, this is almost in every letter. Paul's just, his heart, it's just exploding with thanksgiving. He, he's so grateful. And there's so much I could say right now just about this, but because it's all over, we're going to be looking at this more in the weeks to come, Paul's gratefulness. Uh, but at least I want to highlight it right now. And, and ask yourself, how much of your life right now is just marked by gratefulness, by just being grateful? 
And how much of your prayer life is like Paul's, where he's just like, I can't stop giving thanks to God. Now, as I poured my heart over, over these 43 prayers of Paul in the New Testament this week, one of the big shockers for me was how little Paul prays for his circumstances. There's only one place, and we're going to look at this next week, where, where, where Paul will pray uh, into the circumstances in his life. And, and, and listen, other than that, it, it, it's not there. And this is a guy whose circumstances, I mean, he's constantly facing hardship, rejection. He's been canceled out time and time again. Uh, He's been beaten so many times. I mean, beaten like a pulp. He's been stoned several times. He's been labeled as an enemy of the state. He's He's an enemy of the synagogue. Wherever this guy goes, he's hated. I mean, it's hardship. His whole life is. but he hardly prays for his circumstances. Nor does Paul pray into the difficult circumstances facing the church. And this one really messed with me because I don't pray like Paul. If there's a difficult circumstance in my life or the church or or someone that I know is going through a hard time, I mean, I am praying into that. I'm praying, God, remove it, change it, heal it, bring that person out of it. And what really messed with me, I mean, this summer, Libby and I devoted a ton of time to studying what, the life, what life was like for the, these first Christians in places like Ephesus in the first century. I mean, Libby and I spent uh, literally days in the city of Ephesus with some of the top scholars and archaeologists and local persecution for these first century believers in a place like Ephesus was fierce. I mean, Ephesus is the, is the New York City of, of the Roman Empire. And at the time when Paul is writing this letter to this church, Ephesus is well on its way to becoming the world center, the Vatican, for the worship of the emperor. I mean, it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. Imagine right now if in Washington, D.C., Statues of our president were erected, and imagine if the Lincoln Memorial, they just took out the statue of Abraham Lincoln, instead put a statue of our president, and then uh, engraved in, in, in the writing were, were, were the president's new titles, Lord, God, Savior of the world, Son of God. And then imagine if this this. this crazed to worship our president, went from D.C. to city to city in all of our cities that there were statues going up and temples being built, uh, that his, his name and his title, Son of God, Lord of Lords, plastered on everything. I mean, the closest thing that we have in recent history would probably be Nazi Germany. Where those swastika flags uh, were on every building in every major city and every German had to 
conformed to this ideology that the fear was over all, even down to the daily greeting. It wasn't even just with your mouth, but it was with your hand, Heil Hitler. And there was hell to pay for a German who didn't conform to this. Well, this is Ephesus. I mean, to participate in the economy and the politics, the sports, the social life, one had to conform. And nonconformity, it cost these Christians so much. It cost them relationally, socially, economically. For some, it even cost them their lives. And if you think I'm embellishing this even a little bit, do you even know right now of a pastor who's been put in prison because of their faith or the fact that they're an enemy of the state? All 12 of Jesus' disciples were killed, some were tortured, with the exception of John, because they were an enemy of the state of Rome. And then you think about, they worship literally a man who is crucified as an enemy of the state of Rome. And then when you think about Paul, I mean, even prior to this letter that he writes to this church in Ephesus, he had spent three years in Ephesus building up the church, making disciples of Jesus. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 19. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, it says, For three months Paul spoke boldly about the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you don't preach about another king and another kingdom in an empire where the emperor is claiming total allegiance, but Paul did. And the kingdom of Christ exploded in a place like Ephesus. Because where the darkness is intense, the light shines brighter. And it was put on a collision course with the kingdom of darkness. And sure enough, when you read Acts 19, three times the whole city is in an uproar in response to the Christian thing that's breaking out among them. And think about being a Christian in that context. Wait a second. You're associated with that dude, Paul? Who became a threat almost to Everything that makes our city great? I mean, this is why we have things in our New Testament, like 1 Peter. Listen, these kind of verses are, are, are all over our New Testament. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of God rests on you. And if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you get to bear that name. Or how about this in Hebrews? Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, Christ, when you endured that great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Verses like this are all over our New Testament because that was the world in which church is born. And do you see why Paul's so grateful 
to God for these believers. In the midst of being ostracized, canceled, losing jobs, even possessions and properties, Paul is saying, you stayed true to Christ and you stayed true to each other. Oh, I hope Paul could say that about Crossroads. But here's the shocker. Paul doesn't pray into their circumstances. And I just know if I was in Paul's situation, I mean, verses 15 through 18 would sound something like this. I know, I know what you guys are going through. And God, would you please make life easier for my brothers and sisters in Ephesus? God, would you move all forms of persecution that they are now facing? God, everything that they have lost materially, socially, relationally, God, would you please restore to them what is rightfully yours? That's what I would pray. Paulus would pray that. Look at what he prays. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I don't even know what you're thinking. This moves me. Because as I reflected on this this week, when I, when, in fact, when I first read it, two things exploded in my heart at once. First, how much of my life betrays this prayer? Because so much of my life is about the pursuit of lesser things, remedying the hard things that I'm facing or that other people are facing. My life is, is a betrayal to this, so much of it. But the other thing that just exploded in my heart as I read this prayer is, yes, yes, Paul, yes. You are praying exactly what my heart craves. You are praying everything I want. And that is to know him. And to know him better. And Paul continues this whole thought, this whole prayer in verse 18 when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may see that you may know three things. Number one, the hope that you have. Number two, the riches that you have. And number three, the power that you have. See, more than anything else, what, what, what Paul wants for these Christians is that they would know Christ, Period. That they would know every facet of Christ, all that Christ is, all that Christ has done, all that we possess right now in Christ. Paul so much wants them to know Christ. Now the Greek language actually has two words for knowing or to know. Because there really is two kinds of knowing. Uh, there, there's factual knowing, uh, like two plus two equals four. That two plus two equals four is a fact. And when you know that, that's factual knowing. 
But there's also another kind of knowing, uh, the, the way that I know my, my wife, Libby, the way Libby knows me. In fact, I think sometimes I know her better than she knows herself, and she knows me probably better than I know myself. And, and, and that kind of knowing is, is something that is, is, it's intimate kind of knowledge. It's, it's through this intense experience of doing life together. And so there are these two different kinds of knowing. Yeah, in English, we just have one word for, for know, uh, but the Greek has two words to know. Uh, to, to separate the difference, the one word in Greek is oida. That's to know, know something factually. Two plus two equals four. Four to know that is oida. Uh, the other Greek word is gnosko. And gnosko is, is when we know something intimate, intimately through the experience of that thing. Now the word in verse 18 for know is the word oida. Factual knowledge. Because believe it or not, God wants us to know him factually. Theologically. Why do you think God wrote a book? Because in this book, we get to know who God is, what God is about. We get to know his character, his essence, all that he has done, is doing, and will do in our lives and in the world. In fact, it's because of this book that we can know three things, the three things that Paul wants us to know uh, that we right now possess in Christ. The true hope, the true riches, and the power that we have because we're in Christ. Do you know the hope right now and the riches and the power that you have in Christ right now? Paul wants you to know that he's praying for that. I mean, take hope, for instance. Hope is something that the the human race can't live without. I mean, we are such hope-based creatures. We have to have hope to even get out of bed in the morning. And think about how much our lives are controlled by our hopes. And think then, too, about what people are putting their hope in today, which is probably why there's so much hopelessness. Or what about riches? Think right now about how our world defines riches. Money, homes, cars, vacations, 401ks. Our world is obsessed with these things. It's consumed with getting them. But I think deep down we know the temporal nature of these things and we're experiencing the more you have, the less satisfied you actually are. Or what about power? There's so much lust for power today, whether it be in the traditional sense through a position or a title or status or where one sits at the table, uh, but then in non-traditional ways, uh, everyone today is, is, is trying to be an influencer through social medias and followers and likes. I mean, the ring of power is alive and well today. 
But see, for the Christian, we possess an altogether different kind of hope. We we, we possess a different kind of riches, a different kind of power because the source of our hope, riches, and power is in Christ. It's in knowing Christ. And I can tell you because I learned it, these first Christians, they didn't put their hope in an emperor or an empire. They didn't put their hope in the world or the stuff of this world. They didn't put their hope in a paycheck, a degree. They didn't put their hope in romance or sex, money, status, comfort. They put their hope in Christ. And oftentimes at such great cost, It costs them status, it costs them power, it costs them paychecks, material possessions, some, their very lives. So then you're left asking, then why did you place your hope in Christ? It's because the eyes of their heart were open to the riches of their glorious inheritance, the very thing Paul is praying. They knew Christ. They knew all that they possessed in Christ. They knew all that was coming to them through Christ. Do we? Do you? Right now, do you know what you have in Christ? Or let me ask it from this angle. When you look at our world and when you look at your life, do you have hope? Is your life just just oozing hope right now? (laughs) If it's not, the eyes of your heart probably haven't been opened. I mean, David in Psalm 42 and 43, which is one psalm in the Hebrew Bible, three times in this psalm, David asks himself, soul, he's literally talking to himself, soul, self, why are you downcast? Why are you depressed? Then he preaches to himself. He says, soul, put your hope in God. See, David knew he was putting his hope in the wrong places, in the wrong things. And this can happen to anyone. But when you and I put our hope into anything other than God, it will make us literally depressed. And right now, if you don't know the true riches that you have in Christ, riches that would literally make Bill Gates look like a poor beggar, the eyes of your heart aren't open. And the power that we as as blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ I mean, the potency of this power is what raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know that? That that lives in us? And see, to know this hope and to know this power and to know these riches that we have in Christ, the eyes of our heart must be open. Our hearts must see. And I'll remember for Paul, because this sounds really strange. What do you mean my heart must see? Uh, Isn't that, don't I see with my eyes? Um, Paul, Hebrews, 
believed that the mind was not up here in the brain, but the mind was down here in the heart. So we can't take the mind out of this, even though Paul is talking about our hearts. And we must take up and read, we must use our minds, because this is where God has placed himself. And you can't go around this and come to a true knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. But even this kind of knowing, it's not just something we do with our minds or or any kind of theological knowledge that we have of God. It's something that must be prayed into our hearts, where it goes deep into our bones, where it metabolizes in the very fabric of our being, where it's coming out of our very pores. See, this is what Paul is praying for, that our knowledge of God in Christ, that it wouldn't be shallow, that it wouldn't be watered down, that we would know him fully, that we would know him deeply, and it would go into the very depths of our being. But more than this, Paul just doesn't want us to know about God, oida. He wants us to gnosko. He wants us to know God intimately, experientially. Because that's the word that Paul uses in verse 17 when he says, and I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may epigenosco, that you may know him better. Intimately, personally, experientially. This is the driving passion of Paul's life. <laughs> That's why he's praying this. It's to know Christ. I mean, look at what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, what is more, I considered everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything's a loss compared to knowing Christ for Paul. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may know that I may gain Christ. And think about how Paul got to this place. Because much of Paul's younger life He thought he knew God. Just like right now, some of you, you think you know God. But listen, Paul didn't know God. Because he was steeped in religion. And what do I mean by religion? Religion is what I do. It's what I perform and give to God. Religion is all about me. Instead of what God does, what God performs and gives to me. Religion is where all my confidence is in me. It's in my goodness. It's in my ability to look good and to do good. And I'll tell you this, religion is a very heavy burden to bear because it's the burden of self that someone is bearing, of proving oneself, justifying oneself. It's just this treadmill of performing it. I got to do more. I got to be more. 
And so many upstanding, even spiritual people go the way of religion. And so much of our prayers are a reflection of our religious hearts. And Paul in his early life, he, he played this game. In fact, I think you could say he played this game better than anyone else. He thought it. I mean, that's what he pretty much says in the verses uh, before Philippians 3 verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in self, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to God's word, I'm a Pharisee. As for passion, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on Torah, I was perfect. But here's the problem with this game. You can even be a religious superstar like Paul. You may walk in a room like this and think you're better than nine-tenths of the people in this room. But anyone who plays this religious game loses. Because the Bible says no one is righteous, not one. In another place, the Bible says even our best acts of righteousness are but filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. And you want to get right down to the core of who we are? Listen to what Jeremiah 17 says. It says the heart, this is God talking, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Paul, in, in, in his religion, in those younger days, he's oblivious to all this. He thinks he's the best in God's eyes. He doesn't even know that he's actually fighting against God, that he has become God's enemy. But Jesus loves Paul. Jesus pursues Paul. Jesus encounters Paul. Paul, Paul, why are you against me? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who is it, Lord? It's Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And see, in that moment, everything that Paul thinks about himself, everything that Paul thinks about God, it all unravels and falls apart. And the whole basis for Paul's identity at this point in his life, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Benjaminite. I'm the head of my class. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as to God's law, I'm perfect. At this moment, it all unravels. He's undone, as Isaiah would say. And Jesus wrecks Paul so that he can remake Paul where Paul can go from thinking he's this millionaire spiritually, look at all my spiritual assets that I offer you, God, that I offer the world, to literally being a spiritual beggar. The poorest of the poor, spiritually. In fact, the last letter that Paul will write, he will say, I, Paul, am chief of sinners. 
And that's like just tongue-in-cheek for Paul. He believes that. And until you and I get to that place, we'll never know Christ. Never. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual poverty. That is what a Christian is. And it's the prerequisite to knowing Christ. It's because of all of this happening in Paul where he goes from thinking he's this millionaire spiritually to being a spiritual beggar that the driving passion of his life is to know Christ. I mean, I want to read this again. But whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider it all garbage that I may know Christ. And then a verse later, he says, I want to know Christ. Is this the driving passion of your life? In fact, the word for know here is the word gnosko. It's this personal, it's this intimate, it's this, it's this experiential knowing. knowing. Uh, we have been made to know Christ, to walk intimately with him, to love him with our whole heart. And I've heard so many Christians, when, when they come to a verse like verse 17 in Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1, this, this, this idea that we get a spirit of wisdom in Revelation, which we do. But I hear people talking about, about this, this, this spirit of wisdom in Revelation, like, like, like this verse promises these spiritual experiences and, and these divine secrets from God himself and, and these special powers that ordinary Christians don't get. This is only for special class of Christian. And then they come up with all these spiritual formulas that unleash this wisdom and Revelation. Do you see what we're right back into? Religion. Now it's all what we do, what we perform. When I have intimacy with Jesus, my most intimate moments with him, it's never because I've come to him feeling so full spiritually. It's always when I come to him feeling spiritually empty, depleted, when I feel spiritually like I've drifted, or sometimes when I've really drifted. And it's in that place of emptiness that Christ, he looks so good. And his grace isn't just grace, it's, it's amazing grace. And, and the cross, which, which sometimes it, 
It, it, it can be, you know, a nice cross. Isn't it nice that Jesus died on that cross? And I mean, think about Paul. Paul went from boasting about himself to literally boasting about the cross of his Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you are undone, when you are wrecked to the core, when you're broken and you see the sinful parts and pieces still in your life, that cross is everything. Christ is everything. And you see how much he loves you in spite of you. And how much he did for you. And then repentance in those moments. You talk about experience. You get the father's kiss. You get his embrace. And this is why Paul can say, I count everything as a loss. It's, it's all rubbish. It's garbage compa- compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Can you say that today? Everything's a loss compared to knowing Christ. Your paycheck, achievements, any recognition, material possessions, houses, cars, children, anything that you have. All loss, garbage, rubbish. In comparison to knowing Christ. I mean, we can get so used to Christianity, going to church, organizing, serving, making things happen that we forget what this whole thing is about. And Paul is praying for the thing that that's all about. It's knowing Jesus. Because whether you know this or not right now, our relationship with Christ is the most important thing in the world. It's more important than our family. It's more important than our jobs. It's more important than anything that we possess. It's more important than any dream that we're dreaming. It's more important than any love in our life. It's more important than any circumstance that we are facing because we were made for God to know him, to walk intimately with him, to love him with everything we have my question do you know him have the eyes of your heart been open where you can see him imagine if knowing christ was a driving passion of this church imagine if it was a driving passion of your life If you're not here today, in that place, have the guts to just admit it. Just say, I don't know what Rod's talking about today. I don't know what Paul's talking about. I don't know that hope. I don't know those riches. I don't know that power. Just admit it. And start praying this prayer. Pray it. In fact, I have kneeling benches this morning. If anyone would just like to come up front. Anyone who's empty. Who wants to just bow on their knees before God. And say, God, I want you. I want to know you. And God, I pray that knowing you would be the driving passion of my life.
and I confess that I need your help. And for this church, and for your church all over the globe, God, that like Paul, we could say, I want to know Christ.